like you to turn in your Bibles, please, tonight to Hebrews chapter 10. And if you're using the Pew Bible, it would be page 1007. I've chosen to come down here on a sort of ground level tonight um, because I think perhaps this, this study and this message may be uh, a bit more of a combination of teaching and preaching as we sometimes call it, treaching around here. Um, I want you to notice with me verses 19 through 25. Let me read them for you quickly. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Uh, Tonight we're going to jump into uh, Hebrews, this, this wonderful letter written to Jewish Christians. Um, written by someone that God doesn't want us to know, apparently. Um, There's a lot of debate, and at the end of the day, it doesn't make any difference because the Holy Spirit inspired its author, and it's infallible, and it's authoritative. It was probably written around 68 A.D., and the subject is the superiority of Jesus Christ as God's final and perfect high priest over virtually everything. His superiority over angels, Moses, Aaron, Melchizedek, the Old Testament sacrificial system, the tabernacle. It's about the superiority of the new covenant over the old. Perhaps the key word is the word better. You would be surprised if you did a word study on that and saw how often it was used because it discusses The fact that we have a better covenant, a better redeemer, a better high priest, better sacrifices, better rest, better city, better everything. And yet, in this letter, we find interspersed no less than six serious warnings, calls to faithfulness and perseverance. So while it reveals glorious truths, it's a sobering letter and calls us to great caution in our Christian lives. It's very doctrinal. It's very theological. We have some thoughts of going through the book of Hebrews, perhaps, in the year 2012. We've only hinted at it and wondered about it. And when we come to chapter 10 and verses 19, we actually are coming to a very significant shift in focus in this particular letter, because even though there have been many practical applications prior to this, it's as if from this point on to the end of the the letter, uh, the emphasis is upon the outworking of our Christian faith and practical applications. In fact, I'm going to read for you the comment of uh, Philip Hughes on this very thing. He says, the conclusion of the central doctrinal section of the epistle is now followed by an earnest exhortation to the readers to apply and practice their daily living, in their daily living, the important truths which have been expounded. This insistence on the interconnection between theology and action is a characteristic mark of the New Testament epistolary method. Doctrine is not mere theory. It must be applied. Faith must be practiced as well as professed 
truth must be lived. And we're going to see that in the passage that we look at together tonight. Now, you notice that verse 19 begins with therefore, and you all know that whenever you see a therefore, you're supposed to ask what it's there for. And it always, not always, but usually points backward. And in this case, it certainly does. And so let me just show you the immediate context of this letter. We'll go back just to chapter 9 and notice verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, securing, thus securing an eternal redemption. And then if you will just go to chapter 10 again and notice with me verses 11, 12, and 14, just a little earlier in this chapter, 10 verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And skip please to verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So you, you get a sense of the superiority of the work of Christ and the great accomplishment that he brought about in his death upon the cross. And this having just been mentioned, he says to us, therefore. So the immediate reference is to the great redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to see as we open it up that indeed it does focus upon what Christ did on the cross. So notice with me, first of all, then, the two things that we have, and I want to underscore the word have. The apostle uses the word have twice. Notice it in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have, we have, I want to emphasize that. It's not something we want to get, something we're trying to get, something we're trying to tame, something we hope we someday might possess. We have two things we have. We have confidence. This isn't something we're trying to obtain. So I just wish I had confidence. No, we have confidence. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. That's the first thing that we have. We have confidence to enter the holy places. And the second have is found in verse 21. And since we have, we have a great priest over the house of God. Then, having said these things, since we have, since we have, notice how he goes into what we should do on the basis of what we have. On the basis of these two blessings, these two gifts, these two privileges, this is what we should do, says the apostle. These are the actions which should result. These are the privileges which we should enter into. These are the ways we should respond to the things that we possess. What are they? Well, there are three. And they are what someone has called, um, this is the lettuce garden of God's word because three times in a row the apostle says let us let us let us let us since since let us let us let us okay I'm not really trying to get off on the lettuce thing now I'm emphasizing since da 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 and since da 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 let us let us let us and what are the lettuces the lettuces are let us one draw near obviously to God, let us too hold fast, that is, hold tightly to the truths that we're building our hopes upon, and number three, let us stir one another up. And God willing, what I want to do tonight 
is look at the first let us, and then the Lord willing for the next two, I'll consider let us number two and let us number three. And Pastor Sam said that he didn't want to steal my thunder tonight. I thought it would be kind of funny. He said, why don't you go ahead and do it? Because if you can steal my thunder, you're going to have to rewrite your book on the gifts of the Spirit because he has no idea what I was preaching on tonight. (laughs) Okay, that would have worked. So tonight, I want us to consider uh, let us draw near. But obviously, before we look at what it means to draw near, uh, we need to appreciate the groundwork which the apostle has established before he gives us those lettuce applications. So there's a structure here, and I've basically hinted at it. He tells us two things that we have, and the things he has that we have, he presents in what we sometimes call around here indicatives. Now, I'm going to use those two words again tonight. We're not trying to be theological to be theological. We're not trying to sound sophisticated, not trying to sound highly educated. These are good words, and I think eventually they're sinking into a lot of you, and you're beginning to know what we're talking about. Those first verses that I read for you, 19, 20, and 21, contain the indicatives. And as soon as we get to verse 22, we have the first imperative. Indicatives indicate Imperatives command. Can you remember that? Indicatives indicate. Imperatives command. I'm trying to indicate what indicatives and imperatives are, and it's imperative that you understand what they are. Okay? Let me give you an illustration. A father might say to his son, Son, I've been watching the weather this morning, and it's indicating that it's going to start raining this afternoon, and so it's imperative that you get the lawn mowed before noon. He just used language that you would understand. The news, the weather channel indicates that it's going to rain. Son, it's imperative that you get the lawn mowed before it rains. You know what that means. An indicative is something that is indicated. An imperative is something that is commanded. And in the scriptures, almost without exception, the commands of God's word rest upon indicatives. That's why the apostle uses the word since. In view of the fact that we have confidence to enter into the holy places. And he expands a little bit what he means by that. And in view of the fact that we have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us stir one another up. That's the structure. And it's very, very simple. And I think it's helpful. Now, just before we look at it, be encouraged that he uses the word brothers in verse 14. I like it when the apostles use the word brothers. Because it says to me that whoever wrote this, really wanted to identify with his readers. He's not saying, this is something for you, this isn't for me. He's saying, you know what, at the end of the day, even though God has called me to write this letter, and maybe maybe he was an apostle, maybe not, but whomever he was, he's saying, it doesn't really make any difference because you're my brothers and I'm your brother and we all stand on level ground at the foot of the cross. What I'm about to tell you is just as applicable to me as it is to you. That's the attitude behind the word brothers. And and it's also encouraging how many times he uses the word we in the next five verses. Two times he says we. Four times he says us. Three times he says our. He's identifying with his readers. And that's encouraging. That's encouraging for us as well. Now, what are the two precious gifts? I think I've I've made it fairly clear. I'm just going to reiterate one time. The two things we have are confidence to enter the holy places and a great priest over the house of God. But let's look at them for just a few moments and make sure that we understand what this is about. Confidence to enter the holy places. And the holy places would include both the holy of holies and perhaps the holy place. You know that in the tabernacle there was the holy place. 
and then there was the Holy of Holies. So if you put one next to the other and count them, you have holy places. We have confidence to enter this. He's not urging us to find it. We already have it. But what is this right and this privilege and this warrant that we have? See, don't get hung up on the word confidence. That's a good word. Boldness is sometimes used as well. Confidence and boldness for what? This is, this is what's really precious. Confidence to enter the holy place. What is this entrance? Well, it's none other than fellowship and communion with God. It's coming into the immediate and very presence of God. That's what we have confidence to enter into. It was what only a high priest in the Old Testament could do only once a year, and surely with much fear and trepidation. He had to be sure that his own sins were atoned for. He had to do everything carefully. No one was allowed into the Holy of Holies except the high priest once a year. That would be a pretty fearful job to have. It really would. Because if you go in there with the wrong attitude, you're not coming out. God will kill you. And God wanted the people to know and he wanted us to understand that no one has the right to enter into the immediate presence of God without a perfect atonement. And what the high priest offered was only symbolic. (coughs) Excuse me, it wasn't the perfect or final atonement. So the people of God did not have the right to enter in to the holy of holies, to the holiest place. But now the apostle says, because Jesus Christ went into the holy of holies, as the reality which was symbolized by those earthly priests, now we, we have confidence to enter the holy places. So when God's final holy priest came and he did his redemptive work, he took the infinite merit of his blood into the real holy of holies and removed the veil, the curtain, so that all of the redeemed could freely enter through his merit. Now, I want you to notice with me for just a second, again, chapter 9 and verse 12. Now, we've read it, but see it again. 9:12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And you all know what happened when our Savior died on the cross. You know that the the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And it's interesting, that's recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We won't turn there right now. They're in my notes. But in each gospel, we are told that when our Savior gave up his spirit, the second he died... Literally, the curtain tore in two from top to bottom, indicating that this is something that comes from above. And that veil, that curtain, which kept people out of the Holy of Holies, no longer kept them out. And it was designed to be symbolic. And I'm saying to all of us tonight, reminding you of what you surely know, that our Lord Jesus Christ took the merit of his blood into the Holy of Holies and tore down the curtain so that we have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. And he describes this as a new and a living way in our passage back to chapter um, 10. Notice with me again. I think it's in verse 20. By a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. New, because it's no longer the old approach. One came to finally replace the old approach, and it is the new approach. It is the approach of the new covenant. 
And it is a living way because the one who went through that veil into the Holy of Holies is our living Savior who gives to us life when we come to God through him. It is a living way and it is for the living. Now, that last phrase there in verse 20 is a little difficult and there are differences of opinion as to what it means. It says through the curtain that is through his flesh. It's a little strange, isn't it? He opened for us the living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That all sounds sensible. Then all of a sudden it says that is through his flesh. How could his flesh be the curtain? And again, there are various views, but I think one helpful suggestion is that he himself, his body had to be torn so that it would bleed. And through the tearing of our Savior's body, the veil, the barrier was torn as well. So it was it was the brutalizing of our Savior's own flesh, which made the way through the curtain for us. That's, that's certainly a popular uh, perspective as to what it actually means. So that is the first um, have that we have. That's the first possession. Confidence to enter the holy places. Let's look quickly at the second one. And that is that we have a great priest. You see that in verse 21. And that's all it says. And says, since we have a great priest over the house of God. It's not a lot to deal with here, but this is important uh, because the lettuce exhortations are based upon these great gifts. And I think these great gifts have especially to do with the drawing near. I'm not sure. You can pray for me, and if you have insight on that, you can help me as I study this for next week when we come to the second lettuce. But I think that confidence to enter the holy places and a great priest over the house of God are primarily about our drawing near to him, which we're going to see in just a minute. But what does it mean for us to have a great priest? In what sense is our Lord Jesus Christ a great priest? Well, obviously in every sense, but when you think about it, surely he's a great priest over the house of God in terms of his person. Do you realize who this is? This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God. This is the majestic Son of God who is our priest. So there's dignity beyond our imagination in his person. And then he's surely great because of his work. I've already read for you in chapter 9, verse 12, and in chapter 10 as well, how he obtained an eternal salvation for us. How he sat down because he had succeeded in his redemptive work. So the work was great. But he's also a great priest because of what he continues to do for us. And though our immediate passage doesn't open this up, if you just look back to chapter 7 and verse 25, you see something that he's doing for us even tonight while we sit in this room. Look at 725. Consequently, speaking of our Savior, well, let's just go back to 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Christ, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. If you have drawn near to God through Jesus Christ, you can count on this. You can bake on this. You're as saved as you can possibly be because he is going to save you to the uttermost because this is God. And then he goes on to say, through, uh, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Right now, dear people, our Savior's presence at the right hand of the Father is one perpetual prayer for us. He pleads those five bleeding wounds. And we persevere in our Christian lives in part because Christ prays for us. We persevere because God determined and decreed that we should land safely in heaven. We persevere because God the Son made a perfect atonement for our sins, and none of them will meet us in the day of judgment if we're trusting in him. 
and we persevere because of the abiding and dwelling of the Holy Spirit. We also persevere because he makes intercession for us. So do, is there anyone here tonight who would question the greatness of our priest over the house of God? I've just taken five minutes to just touch on it. We, we will spend eternity contemplating the greatness of our priest. He's great beyond our imagination. So these are the two things that we have. These are the two realities. These are the two possessions. Confidence to enter, great priest. So that's the foundation for the response that he's about to call upon. Those are the reasons for the actions to come. Those are the indicatives upon which the imperatives are based. And what we're about to be told to do in verses 23, 20, or verse 22, I think it is actually. Yes, verse 22, 23, 24, and 25. And we're only going to look tonight at verse 22. What we're about to be told to do is grounded in what we have just seen. Now, for some of you younger guys that are, you know, working to learn how to open the Word of God, and we're discussing this on the Saturday morning mentoring class, as you know, that's a good word. When you read the arguments of the apostles, and this is for all lay people who want to meditate seriously about the Word of God, when you see an argument developing, an exhortation coming, ask yourself, what is this grounded in? What is this grounded upon? Has he laid a foundation for what he's just said? And almost always you'll find it has. So I'm just saying one more time. When the writer to the Hebrews tells us, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us. Did you see that that's a ground? He's laid a foundation. He's given us the indicatives upon which the imperatives rest. So let's, let's just take a look then for a few minutes tonight then at the first one. What is the first imperative? It's there in verse 23. Let us draw near. We've already seen that we have confidence to enter. So he says, then let's draw near. In other words, let's come into the presence of God. Let's approach our God in intimate communion. Let's seek his face. Let's fellowship with God. Isn't that the obvious logical conclusion of what we should do since we have confidence to enter? We have a warrant to enter into the holy place. And the apostle says, then do it. Exercise your Privilege. Take advantage of this. The right has been purchased. The way has been made. The curtain has been torn. Let us draw near. Is what he's saying to us. Now, it seems to me, doesn't it seem to you as well that when you think about drawing near to God, there are really only two sort of categories or types of uh, such an entrance. I, I wish this were a class, and I thought a little bit about turning it into a class and prepared the guys to possibly hand out some microphones, but I'm not going to do that at least right now. But if this were a class, let's say, under what circumstances do we enter? Do we draw near to God? If I said, do, do any of you draw near to God? And I hope you'd all say yes. When is the last time you drew near to God? I hope some of you'd say, just a few minutes ago when we were singing, because it was a prayer. And I, by faith in my mediator, who paved the way into the Holy of Holies, and assures me in his word that I have confidence to enter, I went. I was there. I was there just a few minutes ago. And I hope others of you would say, I was there this afternoon. I spent some time in the word and then in prayer. And I sought the face of God. And I made that entrance. I obeyed the draw near. 
I tried to draw near to God, and I believe by faith that I did. I didn't feel all that I wished I could feel and that I sometimes feel, but I did draw near. Well, after we talk about it for a while, and I say, so then what are the ways that we draw near to God? I think you'd say, well, we draw near to God corporately, and we draw near to God privately. And we do it primarily through prayer, which includes singing. So you could say, in a sense, we draw near to God whenever we worship, privately or corporately. Most of our songs are prayers. They're either petitioning God for something or they're praising him for something else. Usually, only once in a while do we sing songs that stir one another up, which are good. We're supposed to do that too. We're supposed to exhort one another in songs. We sing, come ye faithful people, come. And uh, God rest ye merry gentlemen. But most of the time, In our singing, we are petitioning God or we are praising God. And in order to petition or praise him, you've got to enter. You've got to go where he is. Where is he? He's in heaven. And where he is, that is the Holy of Holies. And we have confidence to enter it. And we are told to draw near. So we do this primarily in prayer, corporately and privately. But just before I elaborate any further on that, would you notice with me how it is that we're supposed to draw near? We can't skip over that. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Remember, that's all the further I'm going tonight. So we can't just draw near. The apostle says, draw near with. And if you really try to itemize it and write it down, I think you come up with four things. You see the four things? Look at it. Draw near, one, with a true heart. Two, in full assurance of faith. Three, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. And four, our bodies washed with pure water. Now, I don't think we should see these four things so much as separate things, but rather aspects of sort of one thing, and it is the way or the manner in which we draw near. The first two, I think, are things that we have to concern ourselves every time we pray, and every time we worship. The last two, I believe, and I'm open for help in this regard, are things that we must have at the point of our conversion. And if we have it at the point of our conversion, we always have it. I'll I'll say a little more about that in just a moment. But the first thing we have to have is a true heart. That would be a sincere heart, a genuine heart. So we can't just say, okay, thanks, apostle. I'm going to go ahead and draw near. We have to say, wait a minute. What about my heart? Do I even even want to draw near to God? Is my heart divided? Is it impure? Is it not genuine? Or is it genuine? Jesus said, that God desires those who worship him to worship him in spirit and in truth. We need a sincere heart when we come to God. Have you ever worshiped God without a sincere heart? Or at least entered into the outward motions of worshiping God without? Have you ever prayed without a sincere heart? Who, who would be so dishonest or foolish to say, no, not me. My, my heart's always been true and sincere. Halfway through our prayers, we have to ask God to forgive us for our prayers. Because our hearts are so divided. And in, and even the things that we're praying for sometimes are not true in terms of what we really believe would be the will of God. So we must look at our hearts and at least pray for a moment. I'm not saying sit around all morning long and 
work for about an hour and a half to find a pure heart, and then it's too late. You got to go. Just say, God, you know my heart. It's so untrue. It's so cluttered. It's so divided. My motives are so often impure. Please purify my heart. I want to pray to you. I want to draw near to you with a pure heart. So there's one, in one sense, we start drawing near to God with an impure heart in order to, in order to obtain the pure heart. And that's okay with God. He likes it when we're very honest about that. I appreciate some of the practical applications of Pastor Sam's teaching on Elijah, especially when he reminds us that don't try to fool God. He already knows. Just tell him what you know and what you honestly feel. So we have to come to God with true hearts. But the other thing is we should come to God in full assurance of faith. Isn't that what it says? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. What does that mean? That means believe that you are truly forgiven and you are accepted with God on the basis of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for you. It means that you embrace the kind of stuff that Pastor Mark was helping us understand from Galatians today. It isn't about our performance. It's about what God has done for us in his son. It's believing that he accepts us on the basis of his work for us. The full assurance of faith is found in him, not in us. So if you have to preach the gospel to yourself for just a moment before you pray, then do it and say to yourself, I'm going to go to God. I have nothing in myself that commends me to God. He should consume me like a fire, but I am clothed in the righteousness of Christ. I did that immersion thing that Pastor Mark talked about. I'm, I'm in Jesus. He's all around me. His righteousness surrounds me. He has paid for my sins. I'm far from perfect. But none of those sins will meet me in the day of judgment because all of them have been met in my Savior. I'm going to God in full assurance of faith that he accepts me based upon what he has done for me. Don't come to God half trusting him, half trusting in Christ. Come with full assurance of faith. Now, these... By the way, I think we should just quickly look at chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, because it's a similar uh, encouragement. 4.14. Excuse me. I hope you appreciate that I'm trying not to run all over the the Bible tonight and all over even the book of Hebrews, but these these few passages help throw light. Look, Look how similar this is. Notice it starts with sense. Now, you learn anything about interpreting the Bible since that sounds like he's going to be laying down a foundation, a ground for something. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. That's the indicative. Here comes the imperative. Let us hold fast our confession. That's next week's sermon. Let us. Draw near, let us hold fast, let us stir up one another. So similar, very similar. So the apostle is saying, let's hold fast our confession. Now notice, for, here's the reason, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a negative way of saying we do have a high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. You see that, don't you? It's a negative way of saying something positive. And then he explains why he can be so sympathetic, because he he was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, here's the conclusion. Here's one of those let us. Let us then with confidence. Have we seen that word tonight? Let us with confidence draw near. Have we seen those words tonight? This is the second time. Let us draw near to the throne of grace. Sounds like prayer. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, dear people, we really should be taking advantage of this great privilege that we have before us purchased by our Savior. Uh, we, We have confidence to enter, and therefore we should draw near with a true heart and with full assurance of faith. And here's another encouragement. You've got a sympathetic Savior. 
And you can go to him and you can say, Lord Jesus, you're the only one in the whole universe, well, besides the Father and the Spirit, who understand what I'm going through. And I'm so thankful that you sympathize. Isn't it wonderful that he sympathizes with you? So much comfort. I was when, uh, when Joy's mom went to be with the Lord and talked to the family a little bit about this. I may have mentioned it even in the, in the brief funeral statement. But, but to have a Savior who sympathizes, I really believe that Jesus wept because his heart was broken and saddened when he watched Martha and Mary cry. It broke his heart. There isn't a dilemma, there isn't a trial in your life that you can ever have that Jesus will not be sympathetic with you and for you. And you need to believe that by faith. And you need to go to the Lord Jesus and say, thank you so much that you understand and feel in, in, in your heart compassion for me. And Lord Jesus, would you please help me? I, I'm asking for grace to help me in my time of need. Thank you for being sympathetic. And that's drawing near. So there we are. We draw near with a true heart and full assurance. And I just want to say this about the last things because I need to start winding down here. Um, Having your heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, bodies washed with pure water. I think what the apostle there, if he is indeed apostle, I probably shouldn't keep saying that. The writer to the Hebrews. I think he's speaking about something that happened when we got saved. I think he's, these are apparently uh, perfect participles, which simply means that they are unrepeatable acts that have abiding effects. These are not conditions for an approach that we yet need to acquire with God. These are, these are, statuses this is a status this is a this is a condition this is a a a characterization of what happened to us when we first came to the lord jesus here's what happened we came to christ and the blood of his atonement was sprinkled upon us and it washed us and cleansed us from all of our sins that's what the high priest had to do he had to he had to sprinkle blood not only on the tabernacle, but he got blood on himself. And he also had to wash. There's such a parallel between these two things. We have come under the sprinkling that the Apostle Peter speaks about. This happened when we first trusted in Christ. So the Apostle is saying, when you draw near, be sure, be absolutely sure that you have come to the Lord Jesus and you are trusting in him because if you have had your conscience cleansed by the sprinkling of the blood, then and only then will you be the kind of person who can come with a true heart and with full assurance of faith. You can't have a true heart and true assurance if you haven't first come to the Savior and been sprinkled by his blood. So I think this is what he's saying. When we draw near, let's be sure that we are the people who have been sprinkled and our consciences have been cleansed. Now, I know there's a sense in which our consciences need daily cleansing, don't they? Because we defile them. How do you cleanse your conscience on a daily basis? The same way you just go back to Christ and say, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you paid for what I just did. I hate it. It was bad enough to send me to hell for all eternity. I'm sorry. Forgive me. And I know that sin was paid for. And I'm asking now that you cleanse, cleanse my conscience again. Keep, we got to keep our consciences clean all day long, over and over and over. Cleanse your conscience. Cleanse your conscience. It's not like you're going to go to hell and you've fallen out of God's grace. I'm not saying that. You, we all know what a guilty conscience is. You can't have good fellowship and communion with God if your conscience is defiled. Cleanse it. But I still believe that the apostle or the writer to the Hebrews here is speaking about the cleansing of conscience that comes when we first trust the Lord Jesus and are sprinkled by his atoning blood and the bodies washed with pure water. That's also debatable. Love to have some of you come and tell me what you're sure it means. And one, one very plausible um, interpretation is that he's talking about baptism. He's talking about the, uh, the, the symbolism of baptism, which includes washing. Pastor Mark mentioned that this morning, too. He mentioned, he mentioned that it's, it symbolizes more than one thing. 
the outward washing and cleansing symbolizes the inward cleansing that came from the blood of Christ. His blood cleanses us, and then we symbolize it by the waters of baptism. So the the writer is saying, make sure that you are those who have come to Christ and have identified with him in the waters of baptism. And just before you enter, be sure that you have a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now, I'm going to conclude then. These are just some thoughts. I wish we had more time. We don't. I want to quit. I just want to ask you these questions. Are you confident about your confidence? What's that about? Well, he said, we have confidence to enter. Are you confident about your confidence? Should be. If he says we have confidence, then we have confidence. That's, that's the writer's way of saying we have warrant and right to do this. It's been purchased. Don't be unconfident about what your confidence is. Number two, do you think frequently about the cost of this entrance that we have? Back to chapter 10 and verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, look at these next five words. By the blood of Jesus. The cost of this confidence was infinite. And we need to think frequently about what it cost our Savior for us to have this confidence. Number three, do we think before we worship about the greatness of our priest? When's the last time before you prayed, you just took a moment or two to meditate upon the great priest that you have over the house of God? I don't, I don't even think about it. We should. The writer says that because we have a great priest, we should do these three things. So there must be some relationship between having a great priest over the house and doing these things. And if there's a relationship, then we should think about it. Think about the greatness of Christ's priesthood. Number four, do we think carefully before we approach God about the sincerity of our hearts? I'm not going to labor that because I've already preached it. Number five, do we obtain frequent and fresh sprinkling for our defiled consciences, even though we've been initially cleansed? And this is my last question. Do we take advantage, adequate advantage of our glorious privilege of drawing near? Look one more time, one last time. At the first four words of verse 22, let us draw near. Suggestion or commandment? Commandment. Good grounds to do that or not? Oh, yes. Confidence to enter. Great priest over the house. So what do you think about the infrequency of our drawing near? Let me ask you this. Tell me, what if your life depended on giving an answer to this question? Tell me something that represents a greater privilege than entering into the immediate presence of God by faith. If you can, you live. If you can't, you die. We're all going to die. There is no greater privilege, privately or corporately. And what does that say about our prayer lives? I'm not trying to load you down with guilt tonight. I want to leave you with hope. But there's a huge disparity between how much advantage we take of the privilege of drawing near. Why would a, why would a, letter, a writer of a letter of the Bible have to tell the people of God to draw near? Because... The Bible's realistic about our our sluggish, cold, unbelieving, ungrateful, independent, 
self-sufficient hearts. And God has to come to us and say to us, you know what? You need to take advantage of something that I purchased for you by the blood of my son. I've given you confidence to enter and you're not even drawing near. I'll tell you what, we need to draw near just to ask his forgiveness for not drawing near. It's a great privilege. It's a glorious privilege. And it was purchased by the Lord Jesus. And yes, I meant what I said. I don't want to leave you guilt-ridden. Let's all draw near and make perhaps the first prayer request. God, would you forgive me? Would you please forgive me for the sinfulness of my inadequate prayer life? I can't imagine why I wouldn't want to spend more time with you. Forgive me. And he will. And Christ died for that sin too. So may the Lord help us to obey the first let us. And God willing, next week we'll look at the second one. Let us hold fast. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. We know that we just jumped into the middle of Hebrews with virtually no context. But we also know that our Savior uh, was the perfect, ultimate, final high priest and that he entered into the true holy of holies by his own blood and he made a way for us, the way that enables us to come without condemnation. Thank you for the confidence we have. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being a great priest over the house of God. Help us to obey the injunction. May we be individually and corporately characterized more and more as people who continually draw near with true hearts and full of assurance. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.